everybody. I'm your host, Guillaume Cochois, and you're listening to episode 47 of the Tapirouge podcast. As I mentioned last week, today's episode marks the end of the very first season of Tapirouge. We've been together every week for the past year, and I will be taking the months of August to rest and enjoy the summer with my family before going back on tour. This will also give me the space and time to work and prepare the second season of the show. You can expect the first episode to come out around early in September. Now, we had to close this first season with a bang. So, the shout out today goes to Michel the Machine Durstein, who was the first one out of many, many people to find out our legendary guest today, Boris Verkovsky. Boris has been a pillar of Cirque du Soleil for the past 30 years. I remember seeing him in every single Cirque documentary when I was a teenager. He was always that mysterious authority figure who was acting in acrobatics, in creation, but also in production. He seemed to be literally everywhere. When Sarah and I started our first training at Cirque, we quickly learned that it was always a big deal when Boris was walking in the studio. I'm now extremely lucky to work every day with him as he fills the position of head coach on our show. He really is one of the most remarkable men I met in the industry. And I'm so happy to share one of our discussions with you guys. So without further ado, the godfather of Cirque du Soleil, Boris Verkovsky. Boris, welcome to Tapis Rouge. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> when was your last uh, your last tapis rouge? Oh my goodness! I guess the uh, the variation of it at uh, Eleni Fisher that both you and I work at. Yes, uh, it is a variation of tapis rouge, so it's not that long ago. And going back to it in August. Yes, yes, for sure. So you you are now the head coach, as you mentioned, on the Helen Fisher tour produced by Cirque du Soleil. But before that, you've been involved in Cirque since many, many years, and you had so many different hats. What would you take us at the very beginning? Like, how did your Cirque du Soleil journey first start? I, I think it's probably in, in some ways very uh, similar to many people who either didn't know about the company, people who come from the sport world. Um, I didn't know anything about the company. And then I was working with national team. And Debbie Brown, who was uh, at the time one of the principal choreographers with the National Gymnastics team, I didn't know that she started to work with Cirque du Soleil. And when Cirque came to Calgary Olympics for the uh, cultural festival that is always part of the Olympic uh, Games in 88, Winter Olympics, Debbie kept calling on me and asking me, oh, you have to come over and see it. You have to come over and see it. And I kept saying, ah, oh, circus, mm, I'm not sure I want to go see circus. And schedule was crazy. We were involved with ceremonies at the Olympics and, and on. And so finally, out of respect to Debbie, I went. And I remember walking out of there with kind of a being confused and a reflection being, what did I just see? I, I wasn't sure. Was it theater? Not quite. Was it circus? Not quite. And it really destabilized my understanding and categorizing of what is circus and what is not. And uh, so that was the first impression. And then um, in um, early 93, I was asked to come in to do a little workshop. It was uh, during creation of Mystere. 
the idea at the time was possibly creating a tumbling act. And then I remember Lynn Hewitt asked me, he said, well, you know, there's an objective to do a tumbling act. And I said, okay, what are the expectations? What is the level? And she said, well, we want triple somersault in the show. And I said, well, how many, how many shows are there per week, per month, per year? And she said, oh, it's, uh, it's 10 per week. And I kind of went, there's nobody who does it in competitions on a regular basis. So what, what, what do you mean you want it 10 times a week? So we continued to talk and my reaction was, well, you need to change equipment. And that's how the idea initially of the fast track came about in building fast track specifically for the show. And fast track essentially at that time was a kind of a brand name for a trampoline based, very elongated uh, trampoline tumbling surface. And so Lynn asked me to come in for the workshop because the, they were not having an easy time. And that's how it all started. I came for workshop. The idea was to be there for five days. And you know, when you come to a place where people know of you and there's one or two people in the group that know you, and there were a couple athletes from a former national team, and they spoke about you and said, oh, this guy knows this and this. And you come in and, and there is a feeling of you have a magic powder in your pocket and you just sprinkle it and everything happens. And it happened. So it's just the athletes were phenomenal, but most of them came from the world of gymnastics. So they were used to very hard surface, the gymnastics floor. And they basically just needed to be helped to wait for the rebounding of the net. And so that's really what I focused on. And in two, three days, everybody started doing tricks they wanted to do. I didn't have to teach the tricks. It just had to help them to learn to feel that piece of equipment. And yeah, so after two, three days, the uh, gentleman who was a director of the studio at the time, uh, Claude Caspain, asked me if I would look at other disciplines. And then I said, I... I'm not a circus person. I did, what do you want me to look at? And he said, well, you know, you have a good acrobatic eye and that's, that's what we want you to do. And I said, okay. So I had to go and look at Mashinwa, Chinese poles, Titoborg, bungee. And it clearly confirmed to me that I have no idea what it is. I have no idea what the technique is. And it was, it was difficult. It was really difficult and kind of a humbling experience. <laughs> but at that time, was Cirque asking you, just look at this, tell us what you think, tell us how to improve, or like, was it more like a free position, like just be there and kind of help out with the team? Yeah, they didn't ask me to coach it, they asked me to look at it. And the reason was, they were having a lot of aches and pains and injuries in the process of creation. And they really wanted to have my eye kind of a this guy comes from another world, from the world of sport, and he did so great on this power truck. What if he finds a, a solution? I think that was the attitude. But perhaps uh, they were looking at, well, maybe the technique is wrong or, or. And, and technique-wise, couldn't help at all. I had no idea what the technique was. But as I watched it and it reaffirmed clearly my assessment that I didn't understand the technique, what I saw was something wrong in the process, in the mechanism, in the system. And that was that there were no studio coaches. There were coaches that would come in for each discipline from outside, specialists, which is fantastic. But when it's so disjointed, so let's, let's take a scenario in this way. A specialist comes in, he doesn't know what the athletes or artists were doing all day long. 
he just gets them for an hour, an hour and a half, let's say, on Chinese poles. He wants to impress the company. He wants to impress those performers because he is passionate about his discipline. So he squeezes them like a lemon for this hour and a half. And he doesn't ask what they're going to do after and then et cetera. He leaves. But then comes in the next guy and he's going to do teeterboard. And he does the same thing. And so after two days of watching this, when we sat down to talk, I said, look, I, I come from the model of the sport. And in the model of the sport, in a North American model, the athlete is a very central figure. I came from Soviet Union. The coach was a very central figure in that sport model. And so I said, in either way, you're not using or respecting neither one. And so for me, you need to find a way to, to establish a function of somebody who will place an athlete as the central figure and not an expert in different disciplines. And so we debated that, we talked about it and said, but you know, practical sense, what does it mean? I said, well, in my understanding, based on the sport model, it means a head coach. And the reaction was, yes, but, you know, uh, the circus doesn't have coaches. Circus doesn't have head coach. And I said, I understand, but I, I don't know any other way. And so we then had a conversation where the proposition was that I come in for the remaining six months of creation, that I was to come in for one week every month. And I was excited about it, but nervous. So I came back, the club that I was coaching and uh, teaching at the university, and I went to the dean and I, I said, look, I have this proposition. I don't know. What does it mean? And he said, oh, that's an exciting thing. It's a big, great name. I didn't know anything about Sirk before that experience. He did. Uh, so he said, oh, we'll help you to get substitutes. But the call didn't come in. A couple of weeks went by, three weeks went by, nobody called. So I thought, okay, I've forgotten it. And then the call came in. The gentleman said, well, we decided to follow your suggestion and we're establishing position of the head coach. And uh, I said, yeah, but remember, I said that it's my reference to the sport. I have no idea. Can it work? Should it work in the circus world? And he said, no, but, you know, you're right. We have so many people come from the sport. And so your point is that the used to model of the sport would be effective rather than immediately they become something else. Mm. And we have to remember that athletes that come from the sport, they're very coach-driven. They're very used to that. They're not as self-sufficient, let's put it this way, mm -hmm. in their process of learning and managing and et cetera. So I said, okay, well, if you decide to go there, I guess, okay, that's interesting. He said, so when do you want to start? And when he said, when do you want to start? I, you know, it got me so much off guard. I so much had zero thinking in this direction that I, I really didn't know what to say. And the only thing that came to my mind was, I, I need to talk to my family. And then he went silent. I said, hey, are you there? He said, well, yes. Uh, he said, I don't think you need to talk to your family. I've been talking to your wife for the last three weeks. <laughs> and so, so just to put it in perspective, Lana is a wonderful person and does not keep the secret, does not hold the secret. So how did she manage to talk to this gentleman for three weeks who mistakenly called in on a home number instead of work number? And So he called and your wife picked up the phone and she was like, who are you? What do you want with my husband? Yes. And then she started negotiating for you. Absolutely. <laughs> and she started to negotiate with me and she was she's an aggressive negotiator, but a hundred times better than me. So that's how it started. It's, it's quite funny. At this time, 
none of us had any contracts per se. So I didn't have the exact title. Later on, years later, when Bernard Petio came in and he asked me what was my exact title, I didn't know. And that's 10 years into me working in the company. <laughs> um, head coach. I said, no, but, but what is it in the practical sense? And I said, in the practical sense, most people call me Uncle Boris in the practical sense. <laughs> but yeah, so Bernard, he had an interesting uh, effort. He said, well, let's put together the job description, not necessarily for your benefit, but for the benefit of structure, because that's one of Bernard's strengths and mandate that when he came to the company. And uh, I remember I did a little bit of writing on what do I do? And then he, from his observations, did it. And I was uh, visiting Lanuba and he sent me the list and it was three pages. And I looked at it and I said, there's no way I'm not signing off on this. So we had a conversation next day and I said, Bernard, it's impossible. He said, but that's what you do. I said, no, but what I do and to be accountable and responsible for, those are not necessarily the same things. <laughs> I'm great and kind of a license to do those things. I'm given very good tools to do those things. But my God, if I have to be responsible for it, there's no way I would take that responsibility. So the the job was malleable. It, it was flexible. We were doing what was needed to do, uh, which is wonderful. It gives you incredible amount of freedom that leads to innovative thinking, that leads to uh, openness, but it can also lead to inconsistency. It can also lead to chaos. It can also lead to difficulty to reproduce. And so as any system, it has benefits, it has disadvantages. And so then uh, my position was uh, formalized as a head coach. And that for a while, I still couldn't tell exactly head coach of what. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the head coach of the company, but then you could say that head coach of the studio and kind of uh, even then when we formalized, it was not categorically clear. <laughs> and then when, when the company came to a point of starting to create every year and more than one per year, what we discussed with Bernard at the time, and, and then Gilles Saint-Croix was involved, obviously, in that discussions, is that our bigger exposure and bigger risk was in the area of creating new shows. It's always been one of the most sacred parts uh, of the company. Basically, we, we said, all right, that's the higher risk. This is what I need to focus on. I stepped away from uh, shows and diffusion, shows and operations. We hired a, a senior head coach for uh, resident show division and a senior head coach for touring show division. And I focused on creation. And that's when we started to build the team because we simply said to be part of innovative process, to be part of creation, we felt that we, you need to be part of the company for the disciplines for craftsmen, professional disciplines like designer of performance, designer of equipment. And so this was the first move that the company said, okay, we will be hiring full-time employees who are performance designers, which in many ways you could say this is glorified good coaches and equipment designers, which you could say many of them are superb level riggers with a broader interest and, and studying more and et cetera. And so we built a department where we eventually got up to a point of 11 people. And those people, this group was responsible to propose ideas in creation, 
take what creation decides on, accepts a short list and uh, develop the actual propositions that were then given an opportunity for workshopping and developing throughout creation. And this third professional that came in that was not a full-time employee in a company was the acrobatic choreography designers. And it's interesting also the story on that, that people say, but choreographers, why would you make such a long title? And, and the reason is very simple. When we had tried to bring people from the world of dance, it didn't always work. And I would say even more aggressively, most of the time it didn't work. <laughs> the dance choreographers are wonderful people and they have an incredible way of developing vision and stuff, but they used to work with professionals, with dancers. And I often joked and said, our acrobats have two left feet, so <laughs> you're going to have to explain to them differently. They're not going to pick up your language just like this and go. Mm -hmm. I always believed that acrobats, athletes, they're absolute learning machines. If somebody can learn to be a gymnast of the world-class level, this is so unnatural to human body. If they can learn that, they can learn anything. But you have to respect the way they're learning and you have to give them the time. And if you do that, they will do anything. They will dance, they will act, they will do anything. Mm -hmm. But creation needs to permit the time for that. And that's, uh, that's another uh, bone of contention of past, what uh, Michel Lepris called the golden era, where we did have the time. Mm -hmm. We had time to experiment. We had time to allow the performers to evolve. We learned from performers. We were able to mold what they were proposing, what was natural for them into the characters and stuff. You cannot replace that with anything. You cannot replace that with the brilliancy of the director or the uh, brilliancy or smartness of the designers, the time together, the time with the most precious commodity performer is irreplaceable for me. I think it's funny that you had that kind of hybrid position that were a bit everywhere in the same time. And when you started to have structure is in the same moment where the company started to also need you more on the forefront of creation. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see that you moving mostly on just the creation part created that need of creating another position as well in the coaching. And this is where the senior head coach position was created. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, we, when you think about the role of the coaching and when you establish this, and it's a very interesting question you're touching because many of our coaches, if not majority of our coaches, come from the world of the sport. And you have to look at it, you have to take a step back and think of the philosophical function and role of the coach. In the world of sport, coach is an extremely central figure, almost regardless of the country. In the world of circus, not only that the term coach didn't really exist, but when it comes to the show operation, and when you think of when it comes to an hour and a half before the show, when we do the show call and et cetera, it's the artistic director, it's the general stage manager, it's the backstage manager, and only then it's the coach. So in the, in the sense of hierarchical function and the role, 
many of our new coaches had really hard time finding their place and adjusting. Mm, that's interesting. Because that's not how they used to work. It's not because of the ego. It's just, it's a completely different way of working. And they felt that they were losing their tools. And on top of that, a few years back, Bernard and I had a meeting with a, a labor lawyer and the guy kind of dropped the bomb. He touched different aspects of what we were interested in, but then he touched one aspect that we didn't even know about. And that was that a coach is not, from a labor law perspective, a boss of a performer because they already have another boss and that's an artistic director. And that, that shook our world and our understanding <laughs> with Bernard. It's like, okay, well, what does it mean? Well, it means many things, including uh, coaches functioning and on the mandate of an artistic director. Coach is not this ultimate, absolute God in a gym that decides everything. There's many things of that. And so in having to deal with all of that, we needed to establish coaching as a profession. We needed to make sure that we find a good balance of the roles, functions, responsibilities, and the degree of the authority within the company for the coaches. So Bernard did an enormous amount of work at the time, and then Richard Lepage picked up on it, where we needed to establish coaching as a profession. And to do that, you have to do some things that many of our coaches don't like and still don't like. And that means documenting, reporting. Your documenting has to be retrievable, information in the process has to be defendable and, and on and on. That's part mm -hmm. of professionalizing a certain craft. Mm -hmm. And that process never was easy or smooth. And I can tell you that I fought against some of it with Bernard. I, for, <laughs> for at least two or three years, coaches were doing uh, weekly reports, but I refused to call them reports. We call them coaching logbook. <laughs> and for a long time, it was coaches reflection a weekly reflection on what happened during the week and how do they adjust the next week. But it was their document. It was their working document. Mm -hmm. But then gradually we had to surrender and, and give in to some of the formal tools that, uh, that allow profession to be respected as a profession. And that led to important part of creating what we call this triangle in a decision-making process in the show. There is this uh, triangle where at the top of the triangle is the artistic director, the ultimately responsible person for the show tonight. And on the two other corners is performance medicine lead and coaching lead. And that triangle is to, to question, to challenge, uh, to debate, and to make decisions. That ultimately then would lead to, okay, the way the show is structured that night. So that's uh, super interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it, it it was a continuous effort, continuous process, and I still think that it will evolve and and need certain dynamic. But indeed, you need to keep. I believe you. You need to keep coaching in a very critical and a very central role. It's Bernard and Richard that introduced this notion of state of readiness, where part of the coaching role on a daily basis to be assessing state of readiness and based on that perhaps altering some of the choices and performing at that particular show mm -hmm. how do you assess that state of readiness for the artist on the show ah, 
that's a very unfair question because some of it is based on assessing where the wind is blowing from. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be very close with your performers. You have to know them well enough so you could pose the judgment. And this is for me the philosophy of coaching. You are not coaching when you have a scheduled session. You always coach. You coaching when you're having a cup of tea with somebody. You coaching, unfortunately, when you when you're smoking outside with someone. You're watching them. You're gauging their uh, level of arousal. You're gauging their regular state. You're comparing it to what you're already accustomed to to that person. But when I say that you need to do it very on an individual basis, it's critical. So we have a gentleman. I'm not going to use the name, but we have a gentleman mm -hmm. in one of the hardest and highest three disciplines swing to swing very kind mm -hmm. his way of warming up was to sleep and i have been challenged on it the coach on the show have been challenged on it that this is ridiculous it would he would be so much better if he was warming up uh, and doing this and this calisthenics or this or that and we were saying listen this guy is doing twisting double somersault from swing to swing this guy is doing one and a half twisting somersaults from swing to swing. He lands without touching the rails and he does it 100% of the time. Now that you just said that detail, he lands without touching the rails, I know exactly who you're talking about. He is a weird specimen. And so if we play with it, if we, we will probably cause more harm than good. And so we were fighting off very good questions from performance medicine people from some of the management saying that but that's ridiculous and i'm not exaggerating this guy will sleep somewhere in the corner of artistic tent and the artist coach of that act would go and wake him up two to three minutes before they go on stage <laughs> two to three minutes that's it that's it it's it's completely crazy but it worked it worked and to a certain degree you need to learn and respect that and so To me, that's one extreme example. I, we had other examples where in the same act, there was a, one flyer that was absolutely breaking the wrist of the basket that was receiving the flyer because he would just go sky high. And coming from that height, you know, weighing 76, 77 kilograms, it just was killing the guys. And we did everything we could to keep it lower including training his skills in the artistic tent because he couldn't go any higher just to keep <laughs> yes. lower. But then eventually what worked the best is to do very intense five-minute conditioning session, literally five minutes before the act performance. And by doing that, he would just let out the steam and just calm down. So those are extreme different things. And But you develop those based on knowing people, understanding, mm -hmm. feeling, observing. Yes, there's some scientific tools. Yes, there are questionnaires that also give you indicators. But if you only depend on a wellness uh, assessment, uh, self-assessment, then I say you're not coaching. Mm -hmm. If you only sit at the computer and you, you look at the self-assessment that uh, performers did as they walk up, that's not good coaching. Mm -hmm. Good coaching is on the floor. In your opinion, how does the mind and the body of an acrobat work together? Because I assume as a coach, working with the body of an acrobat is something that you learn 
because you learn how to spot, how to teach certain skills, how to manage the performance, but how do you work with the mind? But like, how do you manage, I don't know, the stress level or like the, the psychological aspect? I think, again, there are very specific techniques on managing the, uh, the level of arousal. This is probably one of the first principal elements that coach has to master. And basically, you're managing level of arousal by either bringing it up or bringing it down. When I went through a competitive career, I recall our coach would gauge it. And occasionally, he would take us right before the competition. He would take us to some shopping mall. And it was like always weird and strange. He would make a breakfast short and would take us to a shopping center and, and then bring us to the gym. And he would just kind of go, well, why, what is he doing? And, and basically... He assessed that uh, some of us were too low and shopping center would stimulate because of all the colors and all the people and all of the information. And interesting enough that exactly the same environment for those that were a bit too aroused, it would fatigue them and bring them down. Mm. And so that was his way of doing it. There are many, many different things. I, I'll tell you a funny personal story. When I took sports psychology, I was very fortunate. I was uh, at university where it was the first year that the study for becoming a coach and study for becoming being a, a physical education teacher were separated. And so we had a, a bigger emphasis on sports psychology that was relatively new at the time. We had a very young professor who was a good practitioner. He worked with a number of national teams. And I remember studying for an exam and, and the way you did exams in, in Soviet Union for most of the subjects, sometimes you would get all the questions that will be at the exam at the beginning of the course. And then you study knowing what the questions will be. But, you know, mentally, it may be very helpful, but practically, there's 360 of those questions. So you still, you still have to study the whole book. And so in the auditorium, there is a professor there's a person who is answering in front of him. There is the next person who is preparing. He already got his questions. And you walk in. You walk in, you come to the table, and the table is full of uh, little cards face down. And you just choose any card you want, and you turn it over, and there are three questions. And at that point, you're so nervous. Your level of arousal is so high. Your heart is beating like crazy in your temples can barely breathe you can barely read your damn questions the professor says okay you have a choice you could keep your chosen card and go sit and prepare or you could change it but you lose 25 percent of your mark if you change your card Ooh, okay and so then you make a choice and you go sit down and after that you prepare while the two people in front of you answer and then you answer so knowing that while you're waiting outside of the room and my last name, Verhovsky, was always somehow closer to the end of the list. And so I remember getting excited, nervous, relaxed, or excited, nervous, relaxed, waiting for my turn. And so finally, mm -hmm. I just felt way too intense. And I, without any thinking, I dropped down and started to do as much as I could in a very short time push-ups. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I noticed pair of polished shoes kind of in front of me. So I stopped, I looked up, and my God, it's my professor. And he's standing there with arms crossed, and he looks at me and says, so what are you doing? I, well, yes. Didn't know what to say. 
He said, tell me what you're doing. I said, well, I was doing push-ups. Why? And at that point, you become defensive. And I was like, well, I, why? why? What's, what's the problem? What's the big deal? He said, I want to hear why you were doing it. So I was getting too nervous. He said, where is your mark book? We, we carried the, the, mm -hmm. the book for all the marks. I said, but what's wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. He said, give me your mark book. He takes it and signs past. So I didn't even have to take the exam. Wow. And then in the lecture next, the following week, he said, this is what I'm looking for, an application. Knowledge is fantastic, but the capacity to apply is what I'm looking for. So yeah. for me, it's, it's that type of mindset. And I, I guess I was very lucky, very fortunate to be influenced as a developing coach, young coach by this type of academic opportunities, but also my coach, uh, Vladimir Shvalbo, who developed hundreds of masters of sport and many, many, many world champions in, in the world of trampolining and stuff. Mm -hmm. I had phenomenal teaching. And so you nurture that capacity to gauge state of readiness. You use some of the tools that are a little bit more objective and more on average. Mm -hmm. But I think the most essential part is individuality. We see in the world of sports, the place that data has becomes more and more important. Like, as you say, we coaches and like performance department, they tends to like record more data and decision-making are more and more based on this data and less on like individuality and maybe less on an emotional response. And I feel sometimes it's treating the athletes more like a machine and less of an individual. And do you see that is happening at Cirque or in the world of acrobatics in general? Or do you think that because Cirque and circus in general, in the end, it's an performing arts. So this can never happen. I think it can happen in any company that has become a big company and you have to manage quantity. And when you manage quantity, well, let's, let's begin with a sport in the world of sport. The influence of science is phenomenal and it's wonderful. I mean, subjects uh, that, that are being used right now. I mean, we've allowed the biomechanics to evolve to an enormously sophisticated level because the application in a sport has given them more tools and allowed to develop more tools. Sport psychology as a science. Sport is this uh, an incredible laboratory where people experience incredible loads, psychological stresses, under observation, and et cetera, et cetera. And so it's great. However, when you manage science work, you need statistical sample to be sufficient in its size. And as soon as you do that, you start averaging out things. And that somehow, intentionally or not, but it steps away from individuality or maybe even suppresses it. And I, mm -hmm. I remember some examples and those examples are rarely publicized during the career of the athlete but you learn about it later on there was a, an absolutely one of the most famous weightlifters alexey vasilyev this guy broke uh, something like 70 or 80 world records heavy uh, category uh, super weight incredible this guy was on a national soviet team for something like 20 years 
He has never, ever trained according to the regiment of the national team. If he felt like training at three o'clock in the morning, he trained at three o'clock in the morning. If he felt like not training today, even so the graphs, and you know, in weightlifting, everything is graphed. The workloads are so meticulously managed. This guy did what it felt like. And because of his popularity, because of his power, because of his appreciation by the state of his results, as much as they hated it, the national team stuff, they backed off and allowed him to do it his way. That's a very extreme example, but it's an example that speaks of the fact that if you have an opportunity to apply the best knowledge to you as an individual, I'm all for it. But if you don't have the time for it and you can only apply that knowledge to you and me and him and him and him because we're a group and because there is no time to account for individuality, I don't buy into that. I don't believe in that. I don't think it's an effective way to work. Yeah, definitely. If we move back to your transition from strictly just the studio and now into the creation, how did that new team of creative and like acrobatic designer and acrobatic choreographer, how does that team work? And practically, what was the, the role and what work were they doing in the process of that creating more show and multiple shows per year? It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very open question just because of the nature of what we were challenged with. The principal mandate from Bernard was, his phrase to me was, look, if I'm to bet on the world or you or one of your designers, I'm sorry, but I'm a pragmatic man and I'm going to bet on the world. I'm not going to bet on one of <laughs> you guys. Our partner in this episode is Circus Talk, the online career marketplace for circus and the performing arts. Circus Talk is the new thing that is great for our international circus community. It is an amazing information resource bringing news, events, and industry trends to us, professionals working in the field. What also makes Circus Talks amazing is their first online casting platform that connects talents and talent seekers in circus and performing arts. If you're a talent seeker, you can finally post jobs and auditions in a professional and transparent way, instead of using social media accounts. There are already over 28,000 artist profiles on Circus Talk that talent seekers can search while talents can find jobs and apply to them via the Circus Talk platform. You can get your first month free on both Circus Talk Talent and Talent Seeker Pro membership by using the promo code TAPIROUGE in one word. So go to circustalk.com, sign up to Pro and use the code TAPIROUGE to find your spotlight with our partner, Circus Talk. All right, guys, a little side story now. Back in 2014, I hurt my back training backstage before a show. The pain was so intense, I couldn't put my socks on, sit for more than two minutes, and obviously, it took me out of the show for quite some time. 
I followed a strict core rehabilitation program and after six weeks, I got back on stage. But I kept having recurring pain. So I started to educate myself about core anatomy, rehab training, and pain science. I wanted to understand why am I doing all these exercises if the pain keeps coming back. The more I was learning, the more I understood I had to change. I started switching exercises, tweak some techniques and executions, and also completely changed my perception of pain. After a couple of weeks, on top of reducing considerably my pain level, I was feeling so much stronger, which increased my confidence to move and better perform on stage. My life overall was so much better. Finally, I was pain-free and not scared to hurt my back again. I had a lot of artists and athlete friends who saw that happening and asked me, hey, what did you do for your back? And I thought, I could put it all out in a clear and clean way, instead of always pulling random videos on YouTube and giving quick guidance. So I reached out to all the best doctors, physiotherapists, and performance medicine specialists whom I met touring, and asked them to help me develop Protocol Cut to the Core. Protocol Cut to the Core is the first rehab and strengthening protocol for back or hip pain that also includes a comprehensive course in core anatomy, biomechanics, and pain science. It is approved by doctors, physios, and performance medicine specialists from five different countries. If you are suffering from acute or persistent back or hip pain, you can find Protocol Cut to the Core on our website at cuttothecorefitness.com. When movement is an issue, movement is the solution. And now, let's get back to the show. And so what he pushed for is the collective effort. What he pushed for is to find ways and techniques of collaboration that could be very productive in our setting, in our environment. And so the notion of co-design was discussed. We also were realizing that with the workload that at that point it was presenting by creating more than one show per year, we needed to bring other people in. Because at that point, when we started the department, the only recognized designer was Andre Simar and me. Mm-hmm. And so then we started to bring people in and we started to pair people up at first in a sense of basically it's not so much to apprentice. I don't see apprenticeship as a derogatory term, but mm-hmm. that was not as much a, as an intention. It was more take the heavy weight on the experienced person and allow the newer person to be more in the role of contributing, but not with the weight of responsibility, accountability, uh, deadlines. Mm-hmm. Remove that stuff. Mm-hmm. Allow them at least one creation where they can breathe free and be excited and not to go to every meeting. And, you know, life as a designer is not an easy life. <laughs> a performance designer is there for the warm-ups at 8.30 or 9 in the morning. Performance designer, at the end of the day, when the production meeting starts at uh, 10.30 in the evening, performance designer is there. And depending on creation, some of those meetings end at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and next morning at 8.30, you're there. And that's six days a week. And that's for four to six months. 
and the level of responsibility and pressure, and, and we're in the business of high risk, it's an enormous. So that was one way that we started, kind of a quasi-apprenticing people in. But then I went to Bernard with another proposition, and my proposition was that none of us are masters of every discipline. It's impossible. If I'm to be taking the responsibility of design for an act for which discipline I feel very high level of confidence, I'm recognized and respected as a specialist or expert, I will push the limit. And one of the reasons I will push the limit because I'm more aware where the limit is. And you know, for me, the ultimate performance of the very good coach or very good designer is to be able to bring the performer as close to the limit as possible, but not break through. Mm -hmm. When you break through the limit, it's a trauma, psychological, mm -hmm. physical, emotional. But if you're too cautious and you don't come close enough to the limit, that's not fair. Not fair to the project, not fair to the performer, not fair to the objective. And so mm -hmm. if I'm responsible for the discipline that I have expertise for, I'm more aware where the limits are and I will come close to it. Mm -hmm. However, there are other disciplines in the same show, in the same project, for which I'm a generalist and I will play safe. And playing safe is not a motto of Sir de Soleil. It has never been. And so mm -hmm. for me, the proposition was, let's have more than one designer per show because we want to be more based on expertise. Initially, it was not very welcome for many reasons. At some level, some of the uh, managers of creation process were uncomfortable with too many people, too many people to manage. And the phrase was like, well, it's too many people around the table. So I kind of jokingly said, well, we'll come with our own chairs, don't worry. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you need to use stupid jokes in order to, yeah. to diffuse the tension. <laughs> exactly. There was other opposition because it was a little bit challenging from a standpoint of an internal cost model. Uh, how do you do the billing and internal billing, which is absolute nightmare for me. But it's here because it's such a big company, you have no choice. You cannot manage it that way. And so this notion of internal billing was introduced. And initially we were told, don't worry, it's not your headache, it's not your problem. But gradually it became because, you know, assigning to designers for the production manager who manages the budget, he's like, well, but how, how do I do the billing? I'm not paying for two people and, and on and on. So it had its challenges, but from a standpoint of the most important, the most sacred part of what Cirque's objective was, is to create highest level possible performance. That was the, the good model that we moved in. And what was the first show that your team created within that new model? Oof, I'm terrible when it comes to uh, chronology and, uh, and, and the specifics uh, of, of time. I think even with Corteo, we already were using some of the group discussions, contribution, Varikai. We had Andre and I were sharing a mandate in Corteo, Denizen, Andre Simar and I. In Corteo, Denizen, uh, that was his first assignment as a, as a designer uh, on equipment and rig design. And so it started at that time quite early. Mm -hmm, that period. But also for me, even prior to that, in the earlier days, even so that 
our expert coaches did not have a title of the designer. I've always brought them to the table. They were definitely not people who were told what to do, but they were contributing. They were significant part of bringing expertise to the table and looking at what's feasible, what's dreamable, what's manageable, what's deliverable. But also, you know, there is another dynamic that is so important to do exactly what I just said, bringing the show coaches, the future show coaches to the process. And that is creation is over and all the design team is out of the way. Mm-hmm. And the reality strikes. And, you know, when you like, you know, we have a big top in the old port right now. And that show, when you think about it, the intensity of creation, especially as we come closer and closer and closer to the opening date, the opening is always on Thursday. Creation team is out of the way. Guess what? There are two shows on Friday and two shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the, the rhythm. And so it's the, the diffusion, the operation starts. And mm-hmm. so sustainability becomes very, very critical question. How much focus do you give in creation to preparing rotations within the act or backup? Mm-hmm. Yes, conceptually, it's a very important aspect. But practically, it takes away from creating. And so there's a lot of those questions that you have to manage. Uh, and I don't pretend that we had great answers or that I have good answers. Mm-hmm. It's a moving target. It's always a moving target. Hmm. And out of all your years at Chip, what would you say were the biggest breakthrough that the company made and opposite what were the biggest challenges or like stuff that maybe the company tried and didn't succeed doing? <laughs> maybe I will add to the last question first. Uh, I would say that the show where we felt we absolutely had collective ideation and collective process was creation of MJ1. For sure. Just to give you an example, three to four times per week at the end of the day for the performers, we would go into a room, I would close the door, I would order the dinner, I would have beer and wine, and all of the coaches, artistic and acrobatic, would be in the room And I would close the door and literally I would pretend that I'm locking the door to make this virtual and kind of ritualistic statement. We don't leave the room until we decide what it is that we're doing tomorrow. And the logic was the time on stage in staging is so incredibly precious that I I hate using this example, but when you're in staging, Your time is in the is in the order of eight to ten thousand dollars per hour, at least. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. cannot come in and kind of go, hmm, well, I think today that's not an option. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be prepared, but I don't want to be prepared on paper. I wanted the full debate and I wanted debate to be open. And so around the table in those dinners, we would have 10 to 12 people debating what worked and why did it work and how we're we going to do it tomorrow. So for me, I would say the show where I felt we did it to the depth of it, rather than just it looked right, was MJ1. And by and large, it's 
it's the it's the management that allowed us to do this. It's uh, Bernard on his side. It's Will Bealtador, who was uh, director of creation. Uh, they have trusted us to do it this way, even so that it was not the most comfortable. <laughs> it's surprising you're saying that show because from what I know about the creation, first he was a third party IP with the IP of Michael Jackson, which means more people around the table. And then there were also multiple choreographers involved doing different parts of the show. So it means even more people around the table. So to have so many different chefs in the kitchen and you saying that the process was better used and the most deep, which is surprising. Yeah, and I, and I think we probably also got lucky that we had the right compatibility of people. And, and that's an important statement too. We were taking painful effort in selecting people to be on that team, on creation team, specifically in the performance. It took a lot of effort. Welby was asking me to evaluate choreographers that were fantastic resume, fantastic reputation. And I was saying that I don't know them. And for what I want to try, for what I want to do, for what I believe we need, I cannot take that risk. I don't know those people. I don't know if they will fit in. And many people in the world of choreography that come from uh, such a high reputation, they come with a huge ego, deservingly so. They are very accomplished mm -hmm. people. That's why they have the impressive resume. But that ego gets in the way. That ego gets in the way of working with the athletes. People come from the background of the sport. And that ego gets in the way of working collectively. And so... At the end, well be agreed. And so we had, for choreography, we had Ben Patvin and Andre Ziegler, two people that we knew well, that we knew can work with everybody, that knew how to push the limit, but to be very collective in the effort. Mm -hmm. So uh, building the team, you certainly don't want to do it based on resume. Yeah, that's a good tip for sure. And so what breakthrough from the company in general? You know, I, I will make a disclaimer before I start giving examples. And the disclaimer that I will make is that as we live through life, as we go through our profession, as we mature, information gets stored and packaged in a different ways. And it may get distorted a little bit. And so mm -hmm, yeah. I don't want to be pretentious. And then to be judged, I'm not representing the perfect chronology and archival mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. For me, the breakthrough, there are so many. At the same time, I'm very cautious not to glorify it because I would say an absolute majority of innovation and breakthrough is done on the backs of what was done before, what was done previously by many other people many other industries. But I would say for me, one of the breakthroughs was definitely the notion of tapping into the world of sport for the human material, for the human content, for that commodity of a well-trained acrobatically individual. And rather than training them for an act, training them to become an artist recognizing the fact that it is not a one or two months process, but still creating what we called at that time, formation general. You take in performers, whether they come from the circus school or more, even more so when they come from 
the world of sport, what we've done is we kind of took the model of what Frank Dragon used to do, doing the Kia to who are you, being in a black box for weeks at the time. We took that and we adapted it to our reality of the general training, where the first week, it was an absolute immersion into artistic. We knew that we taken athletes who are used to very regimental training. There is a very fixed schedule. There is a fixed type of warm-up. There is rotation of events and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes I'll give you an example. We would create a barn in our dense studio, in the, in the studio. We would bring dirt, hay, sawdust, grass, and we would create this strangest environment and we would put those people in and ask them to play and do various exercise that come from the world of the theater. We didn't invent them. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they had to do it for the whole week, learning about themselves and learning about gradually what character they can be or a good material for building a character was critical because we needed to take them out of what we call an acrobatic given. Mm. Then we would play different model, different model of what we were developing and we eventually called acro-artistic. And for me, the, the notion of acro-artistic is this. We've tried to work on parallel. You're developing artistic skills and competencies and you continue to work on the acrobatic. The wrongness of that model is that you work on the artistic qualities in the dance studio, in the studio, in the theater studio, with the black curtain, with the right lighting, and you're not doing any acrobatics. And in an acrobatic world, you're doing zero artistic work in training. You're doing no character work at all whatsoever. You're just working on your allegorical triple somersault. But then by some miracle, you expect that when you put those together, they will naturally be both present. And the answer is mm. no, they will not. <laughs> and if you do force it, you're running a, a not a healthy risk of making mistakes on acrobatic performance. And we know that mistakes in acrobatics are not the right thing because very often mistake in acrobatic world uh, leads to uh, an injury. Mm -hmm. So the notion of acroartistic was worked on for a while. We've tried different things. We've tried, you work for two weeks, independent, parallel, artistic, acrobatic, and then you have one week of emergent. And then you split again, and then you have another week of emergent, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I have to admit that I was fighting against it. I come from a classical training where mm -hmm. if I use the, an allegory of reciting a poem, my academic and my school training was the classical you memorize the poetry and then once you memorize it then you put the quality into it you put the color to it intonation pausing rhythm and etc that's the background that i come from so forcing this hybrid simultaneous model i was not very comfortable with but then we brought a scientist in from university of calgary dr hugh vickers Basically, she was uh, representing a group that developed what they call competency-based learning. And in competency-based learning, they were advocating that for the sport model, you don't want to create this, what we call a greenhouse environment, where 
your learning is most expedient. And the greenhouse environment could be learning your tricks in a foam pit or over the foam pit. Mm-hmm. And you're very focused. You're concentrating only on your progressions and your technique. What she was advocating in their world is that when you do that, your rate of learning is very high, but then you introduce performance. Let's say in a sport, it's going into competition. And the psyche of the performer is so unused to that stressor that unavoidably the level of performance immediately drops. That is not healthy psychologically. We know that. We know in the elite sports, that moment, that phase of 12 to 14 years old, in a complex motor sports, like gymnastics, diving, trampolining, that's where most kids quit because they do so well in training and not so well in a competition. That's a heavy weight psychologically to bear and they start losing fun and, and, and. Mm-hmm. So the competency-based learning advocates the model where from a day one, you introduce complexity. And your rate of learning will be much not as aggressive. It will be slower, but it will not be interrupted because you're already used to other stressors. Mm. And so what that forced us to do is that you don't do acrobatics without an artistic element. But I was also Mm. saying you don't do artistic without an acrobatic element. So when you're in a dance studio and you're doing character work, I expect you to do a cartwheel, a back handspring, a backflip every so often, because that will help me to learn that if I'm going to do backflip in the middle of me doing character or doing capoeira or doing uh, a movement, a very good teacher will see if I'm taking a preparation and breaking away from my character and help me to guide me in not taking that pause and going with the character into the beginning of the trick. And when I land, I'm already in the character. I may even land in character. The landing may even be influenced by the character that I am. Would you mean also introducing more presentation, like presenting in front of a small audience more often so that the artists are becoming more accustomed to do these things in front of the audience so that it's not like they are doing everything in training. And then six months later, they do the first presentation and it's again, another strong element that impact the psychology of the performance and that makes the level of the performance drop. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way Franco did it and the way some other directors uh, have done it is that in, in Franco's way of working, he would have, when he would do not the staging of the act, but an acting session, Everybody was expected to sit in a semicircle near the stage, on the edge of the stage or right off of it, and watch every exercise. Mm. You knew you're being watched. You are presenting every single hour of the day. So you're right. You're introducing this, and finally you get so used to it that it's not negative anymore. And you also learn Mm. to draw from it a good energy. Mm -hmm. You're mentioning Franco and some other directors. After all your years working in the company, do you see that directors are changing? Do you see that the method, what they are requiring, what they are asking from the artists, the way they work with the company, do you see that the new generation of artists are different? I feel that 
the new artists that come to Cirque for creation with the background of circus schools, they're far more sophisticated. They're far more introduced to the variety of styles. They're much, much stronger material than it used to be. And that is clearly the schools are becoming better at delivering a well-balanced curriculum that helps the circus students to develop well. At the same time, athletes that come to us are also more open-minded. They're more aware. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them have been introduced to opportunities of demos and shows and realize that it's not just the triple somersault and it's not just the classical model. So first I will do salto in a tuck position and then salto in a pike position and then it's a layout and then it's a layout with half turn, with full turn, et cetera, et cetera. That, for me, that's an acrobatic alphabet. Mm -hmm. But it's not a language. Language is using alphabet in a certain order that creates the words and the words create sentences and sentences create statements. And with Daniele uh, Finzi Pasco, we had very, very interesting workshop before he was brought in to do a corteo. And in that workshop, he spoke a lot about the language, body language, movement language. And that's when we started discussions on the fact that, well, acrobatics are also language. And that point, somebody said, well, yeah, a salto in the tuck position compared to a pike position, that's a language. And I said, to me, it's not the language. Those are letters. Those are alphabets, mm -hmm. because after that, the way you mix it creates a language. And we know that the classical mind of an elite athlete of this very gradual, add an extra half of the somersault and an extra half of the twist, that's the way we develop. That's the way we train in a world of sport. But that's not what happens on stage in terms of touching the audience making that subliminal statement and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think the students have changed drastically. When it comes to the directors, I dare to say that CIRT has a phenomenal capacity to allow directors to work in the combination of their most comfortable way, what they're used to, but also helping them to learn how to take advantage of this enormous machine, not how to be choked by that machine, which happens easily and often, mm -hmm. but how to take advantage of it. Because I'm not a person who says, oh my God, it's such a huge machine. It's like Titanic. It takes 10 minutes to make a water turn. Yeah, but I use another analogy. It's also an icebreaker. It can go through anything. And so you learn to take advantage of it rather than being choked by it. I believe that Cirque has this enormous capacity to bring almost any director and find a good way to give them their tools, but also give them opportunities that they've never had. Mm. However, you have to make that commitment and you have to permit the time. And if the time is not permitted, Obliesa. Yeah. <laughs> Forget it. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, the very first show in my experience that I was frustrated with the process of creation was a show that we did for Medicine Square Garden, Wintook. Mm -hmm. We brought in a, a very interesting director 
uh, theater director. And I didn't like the way the process was. I was quite frustrated. I In three months, the show was created and delivered. And I remember having a dinner with this gentleman. And I was very careful. I mean, it's not my place to criticize a director, but he started asking more and more questions. And, and at one point in time, he said, be honest with me, what you did and did not like about the process and what you do and do not like about the show. And I said, listen, I, for me, that's not a creation. You came in with everything clear in your mind and we taught. And he said, thank you. I feel the same way. And I thought that Cirque will allow me to do a creation. He said, but three months, there's no way. And I had to admit that he was 100% right. So in this sense, the time is absolutely most essential ingredient. But I also do understand it's extremely expensive. $10,000 an hour on stage. In the staging. Let's say before staging, it's much less. But still, you know, we, if you want to have artists in the studio with all of the support staff, it is very expensive. There's no doubt about it. But, you know... <laughs> We have this stupid statement. I've never heard anybody, not only for Seared, but for any other company where a director or director of creation would stand in front of the audience right before the premiere and say, ladies and gentlemen, let's congratulate ourselves for creating this on time and on budget. <laughs> I've, I've never heard that. <laughs> the audience doesn't care. The audience doesn't care if it's done on time or on budget. The audience cares only for something else. If they like the show or not, and that's it. After all these years, do you have a favorite act or like a favorite piece that you worked on that still has a special place in your heart? I always refuse to answer this question, but I can, <laughs> I can experiment to answer it. But it will not be a singular. You were talking about breakthroughs. And for me, there's some elements of breakthrough that we I feel that we, and, and maybe breakthrough is a bit too glorifying, but I feel that we've done things differently in Alegria when it comes to an acrobatic act. But again, not only in performance, but also in equipment. The agony of trying to create an act with a rebounding surface, but not to set up the equipment, it would take, it would take five minutes to set up the equipment, no matter how ingenious we would be. And so uh, eventually coming to this weirdest idea of part of the stage rolling like a, a garage door. Mm -hmm. So basically the metal plate that has a memory and it wants to bend. There is a big bean and it rolls the door and it opens up and there is power track right under the stage. Mm -hmm. That's an innovative breakthrough. The fact of using this elongated trampoline, essentially. At that time, it was, uh, it was called a fast track because of the brand name that was existing. And then eventually we moved into power track. Uh, that, that's a breakthrough, a Russian bar, but a group Russian bar act. At that point, that was a breakthrough and on and on. But, you know, how could you not say the bateau, the boat at all? Mm, yeah, for sure. You cannot not mention it. It's a, uh, And an evolution of that act. I mean, that's, a, that's, again, my recollection of the process. It's the first time that we had a little department of research and development. And there was uh, a Thierry Souti, 
a former Olympian and at that point a circus coach was uh, brought in from France to lead the work and we hired uh, two gymnasts and we had a crazy idea. We wanted to create a giant yo-yo. And when I say giant, giant. So what we did, we said, okay, if we take a revolving ladder, that's a good old discipline from traditional circus where there is a a very long ladder, let's say, of good 30 feet, uh, like 8, 10 meters, and it has an axle through the middle of it, and it rotates. And one or two people, usually two, kind of oppose each other. They generate rotation, they manage rotation, they control it, they balance it, etc. So we said, well, we're Cirque du Soleil, we're big, we can do two of them. So we basically created a cross with two giant ladders. The notion of yo-yo came from the point we said, the axle that holds those two will have two gigantic straps. And as you roll it up, it moves up Mm. and then rolling down. We ignored a couple of the uh, laws of physics and biomechanics. And one of them that I had no idea of is that if you take a brick, if you take your cell phone and you flip it, No matter how hard you try to flip it, it will always flip and turn Mm -hmm. because of the proportionality of an object. At the same time, if you take discus from track and field Mm -hmm. and you try to flip it and twist it, it will never twist. It will wobble. Uh, mm -hmm. And so as as a practical example, when you look at the diver that does, let's say, two and a half twisting or a significant amount of twisting. They're very tilted. How do they get out of tilt is usually they get in a very deep pike position. And when they get in the pike, it wobbles and it stops the tilt. Mm, Like the disc, yeah. Like a discus. So we didn't realize that our yo-yo will do that. And so when we took the straps off and started to rotate, it just kept turning. Mm. Couldn't control it. We also had to humble down and realize that mm, it's huge, it's interesting, it has a potential, but will the audience believe that we're actually rolling yo-yo up and rolling it down? Or they will simply say, oh, but it's, it's motorized. You move it up, you move it down. Yeah. And if they don't feel it, then all this effort and risk is not worth it. So story continues on. At one point, we said, no, we're stopping this process. But we still had time, budget, and two performers. And both of them, one of them had very good, was Eric Santage, very strong gymnastics background. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Francois had less of the gymnastics background. But Eric was in the junior national team, so very high level. Andre Simara came in and said, look, I've always thought of doing a parallel bar act, maybe a comedy parallel bar, maybe more serious, but a group act. So we brought parallel bars, brought the very old set. So it was very heavy bass. And we hoisted it up and realized that it's stable enough that we can actually do some parallel bars. And we also realized that if the cables were perfectly parallel, when it swings, the parallel bar remains perfectly horizontal. So yes, it can go a little bit up, a little bit down, but it will remain perfectly horizontal because the cables are parallel. 
Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting discovery. So as we progressed with the two guys only, Andre started to go in this direction that, okay, what else is needed? And we agreed that the bars need to be much longer because we want at least two or three people on it at the same time. And then we said, okay, we don't want the language of only gymnastics. So we want to be able to fly. So then we said the bars need to be able to go out and in, so two positions. And then finally we said, it will get boring too fast. To the gymnast, it may be exciting to watch doing variety of skills, but to an audience that is less gymnastics audience, it will become repetitive very quickly. And so we said, we need to add something else. And so we added fixed chair on each end of the parallel bar. Little aerial cradle chair, yeah. Exactly. And that's when Michel Kett, a set designer, looked at it as we were playing with and said, oh, but that's my boat. I'm looking for the boat. I need a boat. So he dressed it up to be a giant boat. And then the big debate was, okay, it's a monstrous piece of equipment. It weighs a ton. How do you motorize it? Mm -hmm. And the decision was that it's too difficult, way too difficult, probably doable, but way too difficult, way too complex, uh, way too expensive. So we said, we're going to do it manually. And the brilliancy of Franco and Debbie was to use the cast to do the initiation of the force, Mm. that collective effort, that unity, that team, that communion delivered an impact that nobody talks about, but it definitely makes a subliminal effort. Yeah, it's a beautiful image when they start moving and pushing. Exactly. And people see and appreciate either clearly or subconsciously that it's a manual effort. It's a team effort. Mm that without the team, it would not work. And that beautiful ending of the act of everybody stopping it and then getting off almost when it stops with only Capitano remaining on it and being last. For me, it's an example of breakthrough apparatus-wise, developing techniques that we absolutely had no idea. And let me tell you, when you get into the casco, if you mistime it, when this machine is still moving, yeah. You're off. <laughs> it will. It, too, yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's not forgiven. And and you know when people say, oh, but you're over the water. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, go jump from the bridge and land sideways. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, the people who say stuff like this, they never land it flat on the water. That's for sure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so after that, you know, I have beautiful feeling about what we've done with a very high swing to swing. Again, we didn't invent the technique. We took the technique. I didn't like the level of risk for the swing-to-swing element. And I said, what if we took advantage? And we had the cast of people coming from the world championship level sport acrobatics. Mm-hmm. And it actually it was a very interesting moment in the history of the company. It was um, Russia was in war in Chechnya. And all of the guys that we had were from Soviet states, and they were all military draft age. And so when we finished our general training, if we send them home, we knew that they were going straight to the war. So Bernard and I went to Lynn Hubert and said, Lynn, could we keep these guys? Could we find a way? And so she gave us a certain amount of time to work with them and try to develop and propose something. 
So that's how it started. And so based on the fact that they came from sport acrobatics, I said, what if instead of the third swing, we have a platform with a basket? And that changes the language because then you could go from the basket to the swing, from the swing to the basket with a bigger trick because the margin of error can be compensated by the basket. Basket is intelligent and it's mobile. Mm. And then was a very, very bizarre moment. I didn't have enough people in the cast to provide the safety, the spotters around that platform. Mm, yeah. And arguing and fighting with the director of creation was not working. And so finally I said in complete frustration, well, then the only option we can use is bavettes for safety. And he looked at me and said, and why not? That becomes a great projection surface. Jacques Marquet, who was the equipment and rig designer, was very angry at me because that was a huge challenge to introduce an extra boom that would hold the bavette. And then how do you anchor it? And on and on and on. But indeed, that became a hugely important element. In the process of creating this act, we took an existing knowledge, which brings us to this whole notion of incremental innovation. And James Tanabi has been a fantastic influencer for me in structuring the thinking and structuring some of the experiences that we've had. That act and the process is a great example of incremental innovation where you begin with a good knowledge, swing to swing. We knew how to do it. Then you introduce new elements that would bring an additional wow and variety. And then the bavette. And the bavette became a total surprise. Not only it gave us the safety that we were looking for, but the end of the act, we do the huge flies into bavette. Some of the flights is doing just a, either no somersault and just character flipping. We call it flying bananas or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> the audience absolutely loves it. But yeah. critics and audience say that we are crazy. This is the hardest element of the show, and we do it at the end of the act. And the answer is, this is the unique gift from the R&D. This is the easiest element in the act. The guys can do it with closed eyes, which is exactly why we do it at the end of the act. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's a rare gift. But it's an example, again, of that kind of a, a breakthrough. That whole notion for me, taking even further back step of capitalizing on bringing elite athletes and forming them artistically and creating very high level acts, group acts. For me, the notion of the group act, that commitment of the company to create group acts of a very high level artistically and acrobatically, for me, that is one of the breakthroughs. Hmm. Yeah. We can continue on and on. It's a, I don't think there's a singular element of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Before I let you go, I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. If tomorrow aliens would land on Earth, how would you explain Cirque du Soleil to them? Oh, my God. Let me try something. I will do it in a different way. <laughs> I will read something for you. It's a statement. When you do your email signature, we were given a, an option. At some point in time, I chose to use that option. And it's a statement in quotation. 
without beautiful choreography, intriguing costumes, wonderful makeup, phenomenal music, superb theatrical lighting, high-tech projection, and stunning scenography, acrobatics cannot speak. However, without acrobatics, the story cannot be told Cirque du Soleil way. This narrative is possible because the company allows us to experiment, to be innovative, and thus acrobatics create a tale of poetry in motion that turns heads and capture the hearts of our audience. It's a huge statement, it's a long one, but somehow I feel that it encapsulates. I love the work that the brand people did at one point in time in identifying the pillars of the company. Um, and there were seven or eight pillars, things like audience being transported into another world for that period of time and, and, and on. I don't, I would have to really think about it. It's a, it's a very, it's a tough question because it's asking for concise, but very complete statement. I'll, I'll work on it for next time, for the next cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that statement was perfect and it was very beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for all, yeah, all that work you've been doing for the company for what the past 30 years now and thank you so much for all the work you're doing on the show with us thank you it's a gift i honestly do say that it's a gift that i had from life to work in that incredible crazy and fun company and being on a show with you guys now it's another gift it's to get back out of the office and to be on the floor to reconnect with the essence of it i completely cherish it Oh, amazing. But I'll see you in a, what, a month now? Yeah. And until then, enjoy the summer in Montreal. Yeah, can't wait to get back, get back to work with you soon. And thank you so much for doing this. I feel that it, it has far more than entertainment value. It's, I think it has many important elements and some people will be learning from it. Some people will be entertained by it. But also it, it will probably provoke some of the thinking and reevaluating of the way we work, the way we could work, the way we should work, the way we shouldn't work. We've done that also. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Oh, I appreciate your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. Well, please share my love with Lana and uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Take care. What a treat, huh? Seriously, how great is Boris? As we said in his mystery post, he's the perfect mix between Yoda and Mr. Miyagi. So much wisdom and experience, but also so funny and always practical. <laughs> he's just the best. Now guys, I know I say this every episode, but can you take a little moment of your time to give us a good rating and write a good review of the show on your podcast app? It doesn't take long and it makes a big difference for us pushing the show forward. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CircusTalk.com, or wherever you're getting your podcast. My dear friends, thank you for coming to our weekly Tapis Rouge. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the opening of season two. Until then, take care, enjoy the summer, enjoy life, enjoy the shows if you're working or performing, toy toy toy, big merde. 
and you surely know it by now, my friends, as we say in the circus, see you down the road. <laughs>